Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Podcast. Located in the heart of Victoria, BC, we are a church that seeks to renew our community through the gospel. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. Today's scripture reading is going to be from John chapter 1. So if you could please turn into your Bibles to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, or you can follow along in your sermon handout, or if you're at home, or if you're on your phones, you can turn to your Bible apps if you guys have those. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, it is that time of year again. It's only November, but I'm trying to get in the mood. Got the red sweater on today. Uh, I got to be able to try and trying to get into this Advent Christmas season, even though it's November. But it's always an exciting time of year uh, when we focus again on the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ into the world. And so, as we lead up to Christmas, I'm going to start a new series that I'm going to call "Come, Let Us Adore Him." I made that up. Do you like that? It's pretty good. Okay, that's, of course, the line from the famous Christmas carol, but a a perfect tagline to capture everything that I'm praying is going to happen to us and for us during this series. What I'm praying is that as we look at the Scriptures, we will see Christ in a new way, maybe see him in a fresh way we haven't seen him before, Uh, that our hearts would embrace him, and that even to our own hearts and then to everybody else, we would be saying, come, come, let us adore him through everything that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. So normally what I do, of course, on Sunday morning is we take one passage of Scripture, we open up that passage, but what I want to do today in particular is to actually look at four passages of Scripture, all which come from what we call the Gospel of John, the book that John wrote about Jesus and during his time with him. John, in his Gospel at multiple points, uses a certain word to draw our attention to who Jesus is. To draw our attention to help us to reflect on who Jesus is, and then eventually that we would come and adore him. That word is behold. Behold. Not the most common word that we use, but I think we all know what it means. If you say to someone, behold, what you're saying is, look, look at this. Pay attention to this. You are, you are drawing attention to something that you think is very important. You want to put emphasis on it. And so you say, behold something. Then you fill in the blank. 
multiple points all through John's gospel, he uses this word behold to draw our attention to Jesus and to who Jesus is. So this morning, John is going to call us to behold Jesus in four different ways. Behold the man, behold the lamb, behold your king, and behold your God. There's an old Scottish preacher named James Stewart, uh, read all kinds of stuff of his, love him, boring a few thoughts from him today. And I think he rightly also points out that these uses of behold could also be stages of belief that people have as they come first to just learn about who Jesus is and eventually to embrace him and give their lives to him. People begin, of course, just by beholding Jesus as a man. A man in one sense, like everyone else. He is a historical figure. Christmas, of course, is about this basic idea that Jesus was born into the world. But then we go on to behold him as the lamb, which is the whole meaning of Christmas. Why did he come into the world? Well, look at that. And then to behold him as king and as God. So no matter where you are at, maybe in your own journey of faith and learning who Jesus Christ is, I'm praying this morning, and I want to invite you this morning into this Christmas story as we behold these four things. So in the first place, we hear a voice in John's gospel that calls us to behold the man. Behold the man. Now, as I said, the first step in many people's faith journey is simply to begin at this most basic point of just recognizing that Jesus was a historical figure and one that was, of course, of immense importance. There's no question that Jesus is the most famous man who ever lived, if not the most famous, pretty close to it, however you want to go about it. We see this invitation to behold a man in the voice of Pilate, the Roman governor, during Jesus' trial. So here's what we read in John 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twist together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. So Pilate knows that Jesus' trial so far amongst the Jewish leaders has been nothing short of a sham. It's not all kinds of wrong things going on here. And so Pilate knows he's not really guilty of anything, but Pilate also is a, he's a politician. He wants to be expedient, and so he just wants to make sure everything is working out well. He knows he doesn't want to crucify Jesus at this moment, but to appease the crowds who want Jesus crucified, Pilate had Jesus flogged. He then brought him in front of these crowds. Jesus has his arms bound. Blood is streaming down his face because a crown made of thorns has been pressed into his skull. He is now weak from the flogging that he has received. Pilate wants to show the crowds that this man, Jesus, is a beaten man. If he's guilty of anything, he's been humbled. And Pilate now really wants to show them that this Jesus poses no threat. And so here's what the next verse says. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, said to them Behold the man. Behold the man. So what he's doing is he's inviting the crowds to pay attention, to look at. Look at this man, everybody. He's been humbled. He doesn't pose much of a threat. I want you to look at him. Pay attention to him. Okay, what's your opinion of him now, crowds? Behold the man. And so now the crowds are going to have to give their opinion. And that's where it comes right to us as well. 
In a sense, Pilate says to us, and John through his gospel says to us, look at this man. What is your opinion of this man? And of course, there's many opinions about Jesus today. But we got to begin probably at this most basic level, that Jesus actually was a historical figure, that he's not a myth, he's not just a legend, that he actually was a man who was born into history just like you and I. The message of Christmas begins right there, that he was truly a man, truly born in history, not a myth and not a legend. So there's a scholar named Bart Ehrman, solid first name. <laughs> but he's not a believer, he's a skeptic, he's not this, this Bart at all. Uh, Not a believer at all, but he wrote a book called Did Jesus Exist? And he's a scholar in New Testament Christianity and in the early uh, Christian faith. So he begins his book by saying that as a historian and as a scholar, he was very confused because he kept getting emails and questions from people in public forums where people would ask the question, did Jesus actually exist? Is he actually a historical figure? And, And uh, Dr. Ehrman would just say, I can't even believe I'm even getting these questions. As a historian, it's very obvious to me, and it's obvious to everyone else, that he truly did exist as a man. But then he just kept getting these questions. So he wanted to research, why is it? Where are these questions coming from that people would ha- somehow even question that Jesus was a historical figure? So he did a lot of research, and his conclusion basically was, every single historian of any reputation whatsoever would emphatically say, of course Jesus was a historical figure. But amongst the general population, who like to research on YouTube, where self-proclaimed experts are always giving their opinions, many people would say, I don't actually think Jesus existed at all. Plenty of YouTube videos out there of experts who will say to you this kind of a thing. So Dr. Ehrman was so confused by this, not only was he confused, he was extremely upset that this misinformation is going amongst the public, so he opens his book by writing this. Listen to these words. I am not a Christian, and I have no interest in promoting a Christian cause or a Christian agenda. I am an agnostic with atheist leanings. But as a historian, I think evidence matters, and the past matters. And for anyone to whom both evidence and the past matter, a dispassionate consideration of the case makes it unique or makes it quite plain. Jesus did exist. Jesus did exist. So at this point, we're just simply following Pilate. Dr. Ehrman, we're just simply following this idea that Jesus truly was a historical figure. Let any thoughts or YouTube research that somehow someone says it, that's not the case. It's honestly, according to Dr. Ehrman and other historians, how could you believe such a thing? Of course he was a historical figure. And so as people look at Jesus' life, as they behold him as a man, where they then go is to regard him usually as one of the most incredible men who's ever existed in the history of the world. There is a reason why Time Magazine, McLean's Magazine, often put Jesus on the cover, because when they do, they sell more copies than at any other time. Jesus is always on the cover because Jesus is arguably the most famous person who has ever existed. Behold, the man Jesus whose ethical teachings on love still make us stand in awe of him and put him above all other ethical teachers in the world, a man who calls us to love our enemies, to avoid hypocrisy, to care for the poor. Behold this man, Jesus, who did not just preach, but practiced 
what he preached. Behold, this incredible man who, as he is being crucified, asks God, as he's being crucified, asks God to forgive those who are crucifying him. Behold, this man who called us to love each other and showed his love to such an extent that he laid down his life for those who are his enemies. Behold this man who teaches us to turn the other cheek then does so himself and wins not through violence but wins through love. Pilate's words and his invitation were far more ironic than he possibly could have imagined. That's one of the things about John's gospel. It's irony often. Pilate says, behold the man, pay attention, what's your opinion about him? And John's gospel goes on to show us that he's not just any man. Jesus is the man, the man of all men, the human being of all human beings. And as people throughout all of history have listened to him and considered his life, how he lived, what he taught, how he went about things, this has been the opinion of him, that he is the human being that we would all long to be like. Again, this is the message of Christmas. And so when John writes in the first chapter of his gospel, as we already read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen, we have beheld. We have beheld his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father. And what is he like? He is full of grace and of truth. Behold this man, what courage he showed, what love he demonstrated, what wisdom he revealed. The first step in anyone's journey of faith towards Jesus is to begin at this most basic level, behold the man. After we've seen Jesus as a historical figure, and after we've been amazed by his teachings, by how he lived, and we think, okay, he's one of the most incredible men who ever lived, then there is a second voice in John's gospel. This second voice calls us to take our next step in our journey of faith toward Jesus. The next call is to behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. So in John chapter 1, we read, as we heard earlier, about this man named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was baptizing people down in the river, and many people thought that John was the long-promised Messiah. That is, the one whom God promised would come to save his people and to make all the wrongs right again. Many people thought John was that Messiah, but John emphatically denied it. I am not the Messiah. He said, I have come to pave the way for the Messiah. And then we read this in verse 29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, pay attention, look, everybody, look right here. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb. This is the message of Christmas as well, that God became man for a reason, There was a purpose to it all. It is not enough to just talk about God becoming a man. Oh, sure, that's incredible. I mean, in your private thoughts and in your thinking, your devotional life, to meditate on how God could ever take on human flesh, a wonderful thing to think about, of course. But the question comes up, why? Why would God become a man? What is going on? Why would he do this? And at the center of this answer is, he came to die as a lamb. 
See, it's not enough at Christmas to just talk about Jesus in the manger, just God becoming a man, just the fact that Jesus was a historical figure. All very important, all very true. But that's kind of, if you stop there, it's kind of like reading a novel halfway through and then just closing it. You want to know what's going to happen. <laughs> you can't just stop there. You've got, to, you've got to know what the rest of the story is. And so in the same way, once we behold the man, we need to move on to the next step, which is to behold the lamb, that Jesus came to be a lamb. Okay, so what does all that mean? Here's the quick background on it. Throughout the Bible story, lambs are used as substitutes for people. Substitutes for people, especially in the Old Testament sacrificial system that God gave to Israel. God said, okay, all human beings have sinned against me. We all are deserving of judgment for our sins against God, but God in his love, in his mercy, and his grace has provided a way so that you and I do not have to face judgment. And within the Israel system, what they would do is you would come before the priest, you bring a lamb, and then depending on what the situation was, you would put your hand on the head of the lamb or the goat, or else the priest on the Day of Atonement would place his, head on, or his hand on the head of the lamb or the goat, then he would confess the sins of the people onto the head of the lamb, symbolically saying, my sins, your sins, have been transferred onto this lamb. And then the lamb's life was taken, symbolically saying that the lamb has acted as your substitute and as mine. The lamb has died, quite literally, in your place. The lamb has taken the judgment that you should have got, so God has made a way out, so you do not have to face judgment or to face death. Jesus, according to John the Baptist then, was born to become the lamb, God's lamb, the lamb that God provides to take away our sins, to have our sins placed upon himself to be our substitute. So throughout the Old Testament, lambs are the substitute. So Jesus then is the lamb of Genesis 22 when Abraham went to sacrifice his son Isaac and God rather provided a lamb as a substitute for Isaac. Jesus is the Passover lamb whose blood was spilled so that the angel of death would pass over the houses of all those who had the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Jesus is the lamb that was led to the slaughter in Isaiah 53, whose death removes our sins. So, on our journey of faith toward Christ, we all must come to the place where we see that there is a God, that I have not obeyed this God, I've not loved him, I've not given thanks to him, I have not worshipped him as I ought, that I am the sinner, that I am deserving of judgment, but then to hear this good news that God sent his son into the world, not just to be a man to teach us how to live, but also to be the lamb who would be our substitute, to stand in our place, to take our sins upon himself and to die the death that we should have died. So have you come to the place where you believe that Jesus is not just a great historical figure, but that next step, that he's also the substitute the one who can have your sins removed to stand in your place? Have you called upon Jesus to say, 
Jesus, forgive my sins. I need my sins forgiven. Have you done that? The scriptures say there's so much good news for us in this message. For anyone who calls upon Jesus will be saved. That is why we sing with the psalmist, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. They're taken off of us, put onto the lamb, and he has taken them away from us. It's so that we can then bow in thanks before God as with the words of Hebrews 8.12 that says, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Or we can stand and shout with the Apostle Paul, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you call upon Jesus to be the lamb to take away your sins, he is the substitute to take away your sins through his own death. So then you can sing as we so often do, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Or if you're older now and if you grew up in Sunday school like I did, don't think they do it anymore now that we don't have flannel graphs anymore, but back in the glory days of flannel graphs and Sunday school songs, we sang it like this, gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. You know what? Now my soul is free and in my heart's a song, buried in the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. I shall sing eternally. Praise God, my sins are, and it's kids, you get to now spell it, G-O-N-E, gone. Oh, I love those old Sunday school songs. The purpose of Christmas, the purpose of God becoming a man was that he might be the Lamb of God, God's Lamb given to you, that if you would come before him and say, Jesus, I need forgiveness. I need someone who can take away my sins. Then Jesus is God's Lamb for you. Oh, come let us adore him, the Lamb who was slain. Behold the man, behold the lamb, and now let's listen to a third voice in John's gospel. It actually comes up twice in different voices. In the third place, the call goes out for us to behold your king. Pay attention. Look, look, there's something of importance here. What is it of importance now? Your king. Behold him. On the week before Jesus died, he entered the city of Jerusalem, and when the people heard that he was coming, they gathered outside the city, and they took palm branches, and they went out to meet him. Here's what we read in John 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel! The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard... Oh, no, we just did this, didn't we? I already read that. Next slide. Sorry, I looked down and then I looked back. Next slide, please. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, look, pay attention. Your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. 
By waving the palm branches, the people were declaring that Jesus of Nazareth was the long-promised Messiah of God, the long-promised king, the king way back in Genesis chapter 49, a king who said would come on a donkey, this king who would eventually all the nations would bow in obedience to him, this long-promised king who would defeat all of God's people's enemies and would make all the wrongs right. And these people are saying, Hosanna, this is the one, this is the king who has finally come. But as John indicates, the people didn't really understand what was going on here. Later, the disciples came to really grasp what was happening. They thought that Jesus was going to be this Messiah who would come and kick out the Romans, uh, make the people of Israel free again. But Jesus had come as a king to fight against far worse enemies than just the Romans. He had come to defeat our greatest enemies, sin and death and the evil spiritual powers that hold us in bondage. Our true and worst enemies, Jesus the King came to defeat them. That's the first voice. Behold him, your king. And then back to Pilate, back to the trial. Again, there's a great irony that happens with Pilate and some more words that he speaks. After he said, behold the man, Pilate took him, he questioned him further, and then he brought Jesus out to the people, and we read these words in John 19, 14. Pilate said to the Jews, Behold, your king. Israel, you've been looking for this king? Here he is, beaten, flogged, weak. A little bit of mockery, perhaps. Behold, here's your king. And do you see the irony here? Here's a Gentile ruler declaring to the people of Israel who are now rejecting Jesus as their king. They want him crucified now, and here's this great irony. He is declaring who Jesus actually is. He is actually properly identifying who Jesus is. Irony happening absolutely everywhere within this story, and yet he has no idea about the full extent of what he is saying. But this is exactly why Jesus came into the world. This is the message of Christmas. The Son of God became a man, not just to die for our sins, that, yes, but to be raised from the dead and to be the king who defeats all our enemies and makes all the wrongs right. And that's why after he died that death, we read in Philippians 2 that God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. That at that name of Jesus... Every single knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow and every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, King, Master. He is the sovereign one. Everyone will confess that this Jesus is not just a man, not even just the Lamb, but is the King to whom all will bow before. And that's why the writer to Hebrews says these words, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to our king. We don't see the world quite like that yet. But we see him for a little while, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. There again, we see how Christmas is always tied to the bigger story. We never want to just stay in the manger. Manger is so he grows to become a man, to be the lamb, to die, to be then raised up up to be the king over all. 
Have you progressed in your journey to faith in Jesus from not just seeing him as a great historical figure, or even as the Lamb of God who might take away your sins, but beholding him as your king, the one whom you gladly would bow before, and as, as you would do before a good king, you would say, command me however you want. I long to obey you, to please you, to live for you. You are my ruler and my king. Listen, you may have many doubts or many difficulties with Christianity. Many people do, and whatever questions you may have, they're probably good questions, I'm sure, uh, and, and you got to answer those kind of questions. And I'm sure that many of your questions or doubts about Christianity have to do with the hypocrisy of Christians in the past or even today, the hypocrisy of the church. These are often things that people will bring up. And just for the sake of argument, let's say that all of those doubts and all of those questions are true and accurate. Let's just say for the sake of argument. But listen, there is ultimately one question that rises above all other questions. There is one question that you must be able to answer, one that you must come face to face with, no matter how much hypocrisy there might be in the church or amongst Christians of the past or of today. One question that is the key to absolutely everything, and it is this. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? There are all kinds of other questions, but it all boils down to this. What will you do with him, with his claims to be the sovereign of the universe, his claims to be the only way, the truth, and the life, that no one can come to the Father except through him? At the end of the day, that is the ultimate question that supersedes and goes above all other questions. His followers may not always represent him well, but what will you do with him? Will you bow your knee to the king? Will you come before him and say, Jesus, I believe you are the king. You're not just the man. You were a man. But you're not even just the lamb who is slain, though you are that. But you are the king of the universe, the one who will one day judge all people. And I want to just bow and give you my entire life. Listen, Jesus has crown rights over the world, for he created it. Jesus has crown rights over your soul, over my soul, because with his blood, he purchased men and women for God. Jesus has crown rights over all our lives, for he is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And the only right response is to say to your own heart, oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Behold the man, behold the lamb, behold your king. And as we behold Jesus in these last moments and really what's the final part of our journey in discovering who Jesus is and giving our whole selves to him, there's one last voice that calls out to us with these words, behold your God. Behold your God. Back before John wrote, Isaiah wrote long before the days of Christ, about how God himself would come to save us. Not just sending someone else to do the dirty work for him. God himself would come to rescue us. And so Isaiah wrote these words. 
Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, you who speak good news to everybody. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, what should you say? What good news should you speak? Behold, pay attention, your God. Your God is coming to rescue you. And John's whole gospel also builds to this point. After you've got all the early chapters with John the Baptist, after you've got Jesus' ministry, after you've got him under Pilate, his death as the lamb who was slain, after his resurrection even, we come to this ultimate story at the end, the story of when Jesus appears to Thomas. Coming, excuse me, to the very end of John's entire gospel. What is it, John, that you want us to know about this Jesus? There is Jesus appearing after his resurrection to Thomas, the doubter, the skeptic. And Thomas reaches out and touches Jesus, showing he's not a ghost. Thomas, Jesus eats some fish, showing it's not some sort of spirit being just that's there. It's truly Jesus in the flesh, so to speak. This is no hallucination. And Thomas grasps who it is that stands before him. As he looks into the eyes of Jesus who was dead and gone, he thought. Thomas's mind suddenly explodes with the realization of who this is who stands before him. This is no mere man. This is not even the greatest teacher who ever lived. This is not even the greatest of all men that now he stands before. This man who stands before him is otherworldly. This man is not natural. This man is supernatural, above the natural order. And Thomas in that moment realizes if this man can beat death itself, if this man is the culmination of all the promises of God, then he's not just a mere man. And Thomas, suddenly his mind exploded with the realization of who this is. He realizes he is in the presence of deity. In a moment of confession and total surrender, he bows before Jesus and says to him, My Lord and my God. For a Jewish man to bow before another man and worship him as God is the most unheard of thing in the history of the world. Others may do that. In other religions, men become gods. But Jews only believe in one God. And you never worship anything but the one God. And here's Thomas bowing before Jesus saying, you are none other than God. So John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and this God is the one who became flesh, clearly identifying Jesus as the eternal Son of God. And then he ends his gospel by saying, Jesus, or through Thomas, my Lord and my God, the whole thing coming together. So this morning then, this call goes out to all of us to bow like Thomas did, to bow before Jesus, not just with respect, Oh yeah, that, but something way higher. We all would show respect to the queen or a king if we were to come into their presence, but this is higher, to bow before him and say, my Lord and my God, I worship you. I worship you, I praise you, I adore you, things we would never do to even the greatest of all human beings. Have you done that today? Have you bowed before Jesus and said to him, my Lord and my God, Behold the man, behold the lamb, behold your king, behold your God.
I'd like us to respond this morning. We're going to respond by singing, and you can guess which song we're going to sing, I'm sure. But I would also like us to respond by confessing our shared belief in who Jesus is. So I want us to do this by reciting together what is called the Nicene Creed. It was written in the 4th century. It's a bit of a longer creed. but It was written in particular to combat any ideas that Jesus is just a man. The most controversial phrase in the whole thing, historically speaking, is when we say that Jesus was begotten but not made. He is begotten of the Father. He is the eternal Son of God. But he was never created. Never made, not like all the rest of us who were made and who were created. And so this creed goes to great lengths to make sure that we explain that Jesus is none other than Thomas saw him, the eternal Son of God. So we're going to recite it together. Two quick things for the end, just so you don't stumble over some of the wording. It says that we believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sin. Uh, That is literally quoting John the Baptist, uh, also in some other places. It's not saying we believe we're baptized to be forgiven. There's one baptism that points us to the forgiveness of sins in Christ is what is meant. And then it also says we believe in the one holy Catholic Church, not referring to the Roman Catholic Church. There was no Roman Catholic Church at this time. Catholic means universal, one church, all the people of God across the whole globe. So why don't we stand together right now and let's recite the Nicene Creed from our hearts, not just as some rote thing, not as just because I'm in church I should say this, confessing our belief in who Jesus is. Together now. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.